after finishing the Ananias and Sapphira narrative in Acts 5, we're going to go into one verse in Hebrews where there's a warning against testing God because Peter told them that they were testing God. And then we're going to go into Numbers 14 and see why testing God is so bad and how it is that we need to avoid testing God, okay? And we'll learn a lot about the gospel in the process. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy that you've shown us through the gospel. Thank you for caring about us and leading us through your word and protecting us from harm and from the evil one. And we pray that we might be people of humble gratitude who turn to you in all things and avoid any kind of bitterness or testing your goodness or your kindness. We want to please you and honor you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here we are. And I'm going to go to right where we left off a couple weeks ago. We are on verse 7 through 9 of Acts 5. Ananias already dropped dead. They took him out to bury him. And now Sapphira is going to come in and commit the same sin that Ananias did. Verse 7, Acts 5. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. See that? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They shall carry you out as well. So Peter, who is speaking for God as an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ, here has taken on a prophetic role. So he supernaturally knows what will happen. He announces to Sapphira that she shall end up like her husband who was buried for lying to the Holy Spirit and he dropped dead. Now, two weeks ago, when I last taught Sunday school, I pointed out to you that what we have here is what the Bible calls exemplary judgment. And we saw from Second Peter 2 that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of exemplary judgment. When God does such an act in history, he's telling all people from all ages from then on what he thinks about a certain sin. It doesn't imply that every time anybody does something like this, they too will drop dead right on the spot. Generally, they don't. 
But we have no excuse for tempting God because we have this narrative that tells us about God's attitude. The word in the Greek for test, where it says put the spirit of the Lord to the test, is parazo, and it's also used in Hebrews 3, 8 or 9, which we'll look at in a moment. Putting God to the test. The Holy Spirit is the source of power, holiness, and spiritual life. They put the Holy Spirit to the test, which is an evil thing. So Peter, in his prophetic ministry, as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, announces what the issue is and the consequence would be the death of Sapphira like her husband Ananias. Now we know that if this happened in the very earliest church while the apostles were still living, that churches will probably have problems later on. And so we see in church history problems. But, my dear friends, what we really need is to know God's word and what he's warned us about so that we don't behave in the same way. Okay? And we need to take the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst seriously. Yes, I'm going to say we're deserving of God to put us to death for those sins. But he's merciful. Yes, we don't deserve anything differently. But this is given to us for our instruction so that we do not fall in the same example of unbelief. We see that in Hebrews. So we will be going into Hebrews and looking at a narrative in Hebrews or a story about a narrative that has to do with testing God as the wilderness wanderers did. Testing God is an allusion to the wilderness wanderers. So there we have it. Verses 10 and 11 as we finish this section. Yes. Yeah, Bob, I heard uh, um, Billy Graham say that that uh, if God doesn't judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah uh, an apology, and I disagree with that. That was exemplary. Yeah, I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. God doesn't owe anybody an apology. And it says in 2 Peter that the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was an example for all of those who thereafter live ungodly lives. So that when people end up before God in eternal judgment, they're without excuse because what God did in the Bible. Okay? So God is not obligated to burn up, as I said two weeks ago, so let's say San Francisco. God doesn't have to do that. He's already made an example out of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're supposed to learn. Okay? And if... um, America, which we see, ignores God, or the citizens do, then do we expect that God approves of that? No. If some certain sin happens and no fire comes down from heaven, does that mean that now God approves of it? 
No. Now, if you remember, I think I mentioned Luke 13. Maybe that was in my article I just published. Remember Luke 13, they asked about the tower that fell on some people? And Jesus said, do you imagine they're worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And the answer was no. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we're supposed to learn the lesson from what it says in the Bible. Now, Hebrews does the same thing. Hebrews goes back to the Numbers 14 incident, which is addressed in Psalm 95, and then warns Christians of the first century that these principles still apply. And that those who engage in the same sort of bitterness and unbelief can expect to come under judgment. That's exemplary judgment. So God does not change. He said, I, the Lord, change not. So we can learn from this incident. And it says, great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. My friends, we are included in all who heard. There's the issue. This is why the word of God has to be clearly taught in all churches. Because if it's not, then people won't hear. And God wants people to hear. Fear came upon not only the church, but other people in that Jewish world they were in heard about this. And fear came upon them. The word church is ekklesia in the Greek. It's used in the Old Testament for the assembly of Yahweh. And here it is those gathered together through the gospel who love the Lord Jesus and are committed to him. Ananias and Sapphira thought they could bring bad motives into the church, that they could receive glory from man. And by doing what they did, they were very much like the Pharisees and Sadducees who opposed Jesus. They had bad motives, and they wanted to be receiving glory from religious people, even though they weren't right with God. Now, let's go to Hebrews to see where this testing God is addressed. You probably know I love the book of Hebrews. I've taught through it twice. The last time on the radio, we taught through Hebrews. I taught through it in Sunday school, and I preach from sections of it many, many times. So here in Hebrews 3, 7 through 9 we have a citation of Psalm 95. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Now, this here is from Psalm 95, 8 through 10, that references Exodus 17, 
2 and 7 and alludes to Numbers chapter 14 that we're going to study today. Notice the high view of Scripture. When the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, he introduces the citation by saying, as the Holy Spirit says. I'm agreeing with Luther who said the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. So when we preach scripture, the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church as the Holy Spirit says. So the Holy Spirit speaking is found in the word of God cited and taught according to the author's intent. If you hear his voice, now under the old covenant on Mount Sinai, God spoke audibly. And the people were so full of fear and alarm, they said, okay, we don't want Yahweh to speak to us anymore. This is too much. We're going to die. Yahweh can speak to Moses And then we'll come and listen to him. Well, what happened? They wouldn't listen to him either. I don't know who said that, but that's exactly right. Moses maybe wasn't as scary, but they wouldn't listen to Moses either. Nothing is more important than that we listen to the Holy Spirit. And nothing is more powerful than the Holy Spirit speaking to the church through the word of God. And so when we teach and preach from God's word, we take that as an awesome responsibility. I know Eric and I do for sure. I spend many, many hours every week in study using every resource available to me to make sure that when I do teach the word of God, I don't misrepresent anything God said. To do so would be a serious sin. I'm not infallible, but God's word is. And if we really say we want the Holy Spirit speaking to the church, then we will attend to the public reading and preaching of Scripture so that we might all learn. The word for tried is parazo. Used also in Acts 5 9, so it's the same word, to put to the test. It's used in Matthew 4 7. Could, uh, Mike, could you look up Matthew 4 7? I don't have that here in my PowerPoint notes. Matthew 4 7. Same word is used with a prefix, but it's the same idea. Jesus told him. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. He said that to Satan, didn't he? He did. Yes. The devil devil was taking him out to tempt him. Yeah. Don't test God. Not good. It's not good. Don't test God. Now, how would jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, hoping the angels catch you, be testing God? Well, because you're forcing God to either honor an impertinent action or let you fall and die 
neither of which are things that God wants to do. So you're testing God by putting yourself in a situation you shouldn't be in. Okay? So if you hear his voice, which we do through scripture, don't harden your hearts. Oh, yes. Not only members of churches, but pastors have hardened their hearts so badly that they don't even want the word of God taught in churches. And so they're saying, we don't want the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Or they go into mystical practices and they think that is the Holy Spirit speaking. And books like Jesus Calling sell millions that claim to be God speaking to us. And I wrote an article about this proving that the Jesus speaking in the book is not the Jesus of the Bible because it contradicts the word of God. And people just say, well, no, we like the book and we're going to get a version for our teenagers and so on and so forth. What is that doing? I'm saying that to read the book, Jesus calling and assume it's God speaking to you is tempting God. Parazzo. You are tempting God. Because either he honors this, which would be teaching a bigger lie, or he brings judgment on you, which he chooses to withhold till the end. So we need to know and not tempt God. Don't do it. Don't tempt God. In his exemplary judgment, we already have the story of the wilderness wanderers. The author of Hebrews is saying, learn from the story. Don't do this. Yes, Mike. I just have a question, Bob. That book, uh, it's kind of personal here. My, both my mother and my sister read that book. And uh, is it because it's extra, is, is it, is it extra revelation? Is she claiming that God spoke directly to her and she has this new revelation from God? Is that the well, main, yeah, Not main only part that, of the, the actual content is unbiblical. For example, I, I was preaching on this a couple of years ago. I pointed out, that in the book, Jesus complains to her about other Christians. Okay, so then I, uh, Jessica made a little video and put it on our CIC website. Is Jesus interceding for us or complaining about us? So see, we're supposed to know that. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So this book, Jesus Calling, Jesus is complaining about Christians, besides the lady who's writing the book, that we aren't mystical enough. So I want to know, is Jesus complaining? Does he talk to other Christians besides me and complain about me? Or is he at the right hand of the throne of God and on high interceding for me? I prefer what the Bible says, that he's interceding for me. I admit I have faults, but Jesus isn't a gossip. He intercedes for us, yes. I've just taken it also as a given. I have not read that book, but 
we're familiar with a lot of these things, and we know people that read this stuff. And and maybe this is just a real obvious point, but they're they're laying themselves open for demonic influence, aren't they? Yes, you know, Be, because okay. they've gone beyond scripture. Yeah, when you go beyond scripture, you're tempting God. When you seek new revelations beyond scripture, you're tempting God. Because you already know what God said. It's, I'm going to show you in Numbers 14. They already knew what God did. They already knew what God said. And they wanted something else. So they were going to stone, as we'll see, God's spokespersons, the legitimate ones. And they were going to find new leaders that would take them back to Egypt. They ignored everything that God did to prove that Moses spoke for God. They said, no, we don't like what he said. We don't like God's promises. We're not interested in the promised land. We don't like the wilderness. We want to go back to Egypt. According to Psalm 95, according to Hebrews 3, 7 through 9, doing that is tempting God. Now, what I'm claiming for the church, for myself, and for any who would hear, is that what we need to do so that we do not tempt God is to remember God's saving works and believe God's promises. This is exactly what he asked for the wilderness wanderers. Remember what God did. He brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He split the Red Sea. He led you by a pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. He fed you manna. He came down on Mount Sinai and revealed himself to Moses, who spoke to them for God. He did miracles day after day for them. He defeated their enemies, and they're saying, no, we don't want Moses. We don't want Caleb and Joshua. We don't want Aaron. We want new leadership, and we want to go back to Egypt. Tempting God. When Eric and I, I was in seminary before him, Well, we ran into the same issue. Not all, but some of the leaders didn't want to even teach what was in the statement of faith. They wanted what the world had to offer. They didn't want to talk about the blood atonement. They didn't want to talk about scripture alone. They wanted the wisdom of the world. And they didn't want the promise of God concerning escaping the sentence of hell and entering into heaven because that was not something we should preach anymore. And then we end up with what? Doug Padgett and Rob Bell. I wrote a book about that. And Brian McLaren. This is a failure, I say here, to believe that God is in our midst and start to doubt his promises. We forget what he did, and we doubt what he promised. 
Yeah, they don't think it's important. As Robin said, they don't teach the Bible. If I want the Holy Spirit to have an impact on the congregation, I will teach the Bible, which is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church. Exodus 17.2, let me read that. Exodus 17.2. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, the same word, parazo, is used. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you put God to the test? Jesus said, Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Exodus 17, 7, while you're there in that section, he named the place Masa and Merabah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? A number of times in the Gospels, people tested Jesus. Greek uses the same word. Luke eleven sixteen. Luke eleven sixteen. Others to test him were demanding him a sign from heaven. Do a sign. See, the, the, the readers of Luke are expected to remember the stories from the Old Testament. They tested Moses, demanding a sign. What? They already had the Passover. The Red Sea already parted. The manna already showed up every day, except for Sabbath. The earth already quaked at Sinai. They already saw the signs day after day after day. They say, well, we want some other sign that we demand or we won't believe. What did Jesus say? No sign will be given this wicked and perverse generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah who was three days and three nights in the belly of So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights and will arise. So the sign that's definitive for us as Christians is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every sermon in Acts mentions the resurrection of Christ. And with that one sign, God has obligated all people forever to believe the gospel. And he will not be forced by unbelieving people to do their bidding. You do this or you do that or I won't believe. We can't do that. It says in Luke 10, 25, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, same word, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this lawyer, we're told by Luke, was putting Jesus to the test. It's actually a good question, but he didn't really want the true answer. He just wanted to test God, thinking he could discredit Jesus. Wow. Well, now we go to Numbers 14. I think you have Numbers 14 on your outlines there. Now, remember, the occasion for Numbers 14 was in Numbers 13, 
where the spies came back with their report, having spied out the promised land. I think you, do you all know that story? That they had a bad report and they caused the people to grumble other than Caleb. And then later we find out Joshua as well. They said, no, no, no. This is bad. They're fortified. And Nephilim are there. They're going to kill us. So hearing that bad report, we have the situation in Numbers 14. Starting at verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. My, my. Is this the height of ingratitude? Did they forget what it says in Exodus, that when they were suffering under the burden of the Egyptians, they cried out to God, to deliver them? Oh, yes, they did. They cried out to God, help us, deliver us. This is too much. We can't bear any more to be slaves for Pharaoh. And God appeared to Moses and raised him up in order to keep his promise to Abraham that after 400 years, God would bring them out. God had made promises to Abraham that included the land that's now called the promised land. God keeps his word. God will keep his word to Abraham. They lifted up their voices. The words used here in the original are words that would normally be used for the lament and the prayer. It's not illegitimate to lament. There are many lament psalms. But the lament is to be included with a prayer of deliverance and a prayer of thanksgiving. All the lament psalms end up with praise to God, thanking him that he answers. Not bitterness. Why did God let this happen to me? Over the 40-some years of ministry that I've been allowed to, to see and participate in I've talked to many dozens of people who are bitter against God who hate their situation in life and believe that God somehow didn't treat them correctly and they look at life as well other people have a good family I had a lousy family Other people have a good job. I can't even find one. Other people are happy and they have families and I'm alone or or whatever. You you can, you've heard it. Complain, complain, complain. But that's not the pattern of the lament in the Psalms. We can honestly tell God how we feel, how bad things are, but we can't end with that. We end with a thank, prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, that your loving kindness endures forever. 
and that even if this bad situation were to continue, I will love you and serve you and praise you. You've given me more than I deserve of benefits and blessings. And no matter how bad this life has been, in God's mercy, he's allowed us to enjoy his green earth, breathe his air, and enjoy the seasons. And even if we had nothing but what I'm describing, common grace, we ought to praise God and thank him. How much more should these people who had experienced God's deliverance in response to their prayer, oh yes, remember what God told Moses, I've heard the groanings of your people. I've heard them. I'm going to send you. I'm going to write an article now. We just published one, and so I'm ready to start writing another. And it's going to be about how God sanctifies us. And my claim shall be, in which it is today, that the way we find sanctification is through remembering God's saving acts and believing his future promises. Think about that, and let's apply it to these people here and to ourselves. If we've found the forgiveness of sins, and if the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, if God sent his son Jesus, the sinless one, to live a sinless life, to suffer rejection and shame, and a brutal crucifixion to be raised on the third day in order to bring to us salvation, in order to bring us into the family of God, in order to take us to himself to be a people, how ungrateful would we be if we forgot? And according to Peter, if we're not growing in sanctification, We forgot our purification from our former sins. Now, I've been saying that, and so has Eric, for many years. And we were rejected by some of our longtime friends because they wouldn't listen to that. Oh, no. It's not about what God did for us. It's about what we're going to do for God. I'll tell you right now, the Gospel of Grace Fellowship is here Because it's about what God has done for us. Gospel of grace. What we do is a response of gratitude for his greater prior work of grace. It's a miracle that we ever do anything that's honoring to God, but we do. And secondly, we believe the promises of God. You see that in the Lord's Supper. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. Is that not true? Remember what God did and believe his promises. This last week while preparing this, I did a search through the Bible, the entire Bible, looking for passages where it says, and you did not remember, or you forgot, or you remembered not. My people forgot. And it's throughout the prophets. And it's in Moses. 
And it's God rebuking the people. So why every Sunday do we preach the gospel? Because we're, number one, calling the lost to salvation. And number two, reminding the, the saved what God did for them. So they lifted their voices and they cried and wept and grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Let's stop right there. Why was it and whose responsibility was it that Moses and Aaron were their leaders? God, you got it. So who are they grumbling against? God. Now, lest we be tempted to grumble, is it possible for the God of creation, the sovereign God of the universe, to do wrong to anybody? No. So any grumbling against God is obviously misguided. So they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we died in the land of Egypt? Would that we had died in the wilderness? They had heard an unbelieving report from the spies. And they didn't believe that the same God who delivered them from Pharaoh could deliver them into the land of Canaan. God hadn't changed. I, the Lord, changed not, he says. This word for grumbled, diagunguzo, that's a cool word, isn't it? <laughs> Diagonguzo in the Greek Old Testament that's used here is used in Luke 15.2. Luke 15.2. This is very interesting. Oh, what a joy and a privilege it was to preach through the gospel of Luke at one time. Luke 15.2, which, by the way, sets off some stories, including the prodigal son. God shows mercy to undeserving sinners. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Whoa, what's going on here? The Pharisees and the scribes think that they've done good deeds that should earn them God's favor. And they furthermore think that these sinners haven't. So how can Jesus eat with the sinners and show favor to them when he should be focused on us, the good people? Oh, yes. And they grumbled. Now, I submit to you that Luke purposely intended by using the term diagonguzo for us to think about what happened in the wilderness. The Pharisees and scribes are just like their fathers. Stephen's going to preach that. It's a fatal flaw, my dear friends, when we start thinking, I did good things, God owes me. And how can he show mercy to somebody that I don't approve of? Diane was out of with a Christian friend the other day and I was home watching the news and on the news they showed 
the relatives of these dear Christian people who'd been murdered at church. And they were showing video of the testimony of these relatives who were Christian to the murderer. And I couldn't, I couldn't take it. The goodness that was in their hearts, the grace, the love, the mercy, the forgiveness of sins. They said, God, forgive us. We have to forgive you. And so I started crying. There I sit. And the door bangs in the garage. And here's Diane. I'm a strong man. And she comes and sits down, looks at me. What's wrong with you? I said, I just heard these people. They're, I'm not, I don't know that I'm that good of a Christian. I don't even believe in comparing one Christian to another, but I was doing it in my mind. It's like, this is beyond one of the guys on this panel that was where they were discussing it. It was a known agnostic was sitting there. He said, I, I can't, I've never, these people are better than me. I've never seen anything like this. The testimony was powerful. And from this whole event, the Christians have shined. Real Christians really believe. Who aren't saying, well, we got a, a bum rap. Yeah, I'll never be able to hug my loved one again. But I'll see her in heaven. Unbelievable. Do you think the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts of Christians? Yes. Is there a difference between grumbling and thanksgiving. Oh, yes. Thank you, Lord, for people like these dear people in Charleston, South Carolina. May we pray for them and I think learn from them. Dear Lord Jesus, I am too quickly angry, too quickly just a lot of things and so that's how that struck me I don't know if any of you saw that would that we died no we don't want to die in the wilderness we want to honor God we want to be those who persevere in the faith it says in Exodus 16 2 the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They lifted up their voices, but for the wrong reason. So the next slide. He says, they say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They questioned God's character and his motives. In unbelief, they refuse to believe his promises. They forget about God and his saving acts. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, saying, do this in remembrance of me, these are not empty words. Jesus, the Lord of the church, the head of the church, knows what we need. 
Jesus is keeping us from being like this because we're no different than them, but by the grace of God. He's keeping us from anger and bitterness and ingratitude. He's helping us to bring honor and hold to his holy name. He's causing us to believe his promises. Do this in remembrance of me. Yes. Why? Because we need it. Rather than acknowledge Moses as God's appointed spokesman, they want somebody else whom God hadn't chosen. My friends, nobody's forcing you or I to go where the gospel's preached. We could go have our ears tickled a lot of different places, couldn't we? And we could find human wisdom, how to, how to have your best life now. Or we can remember what God did and believe his promises. I believe Jesus Christ is coming again. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe that there's a literal heaven and a literal hell. I believe there'll be a final judgment. I believe that God's appointed spokespersons are Christ and his apostles. So therefore, it would be a a sin against God to appoint some other kind of leader and return to Egypt, which in the Bible is a type of the world. I looked at some of my commentaries and I found some great material. It's not all bad in a church. God does have some good teachers out there. Here's one from the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. Quote, Dr. Ashley here, four successively more specific and climatic clauses make it clear that the whole people complained about their present situation. They not only raised their voices, they wept. Their weeping consisted in murmuring. Their murmuring was specifically that they wished to have died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Their complaint issues into attributing an evil motive to Yahweh and a desire, if not a decision, to reject God's leader and choose a new one to take him back to Egypt. The verbs used in verses 1 through 4 tie the account of this rebellion to others already narrated. Exodus 15 through 17. In fact, these Verses allow the whole spy mission of chapter 13 to be seen as the preamble for one more great rebellion in the wilderness. Unbelievable. Unquote Dr. Ashley. Thinking again of those dear Christians in Charleston. And we, pr- we should praise the good and emulate the good. Any one of those persons who confessed Christ and their faith and their forgiveness could have just as easily said, my dear mother or brother or sister or daughter, whoever it was, in all honesty and integrity, went to church to study the Bible and pray. In some deranged, evil, wicked man filled with hatred that was ungrounded in any kind of reality 
murdered them. Why did God let that happen? They didn't say that, did they? You know, when we look at life, we can always say, why did God let that happen? Why didn't God do something about this? Or why didn't God stop that? I think what was so unbelievable about this testimony was they didn't do that. And I felt convicted about my own self and my own attitudes. And I felt motivated to remember God's mighty works and to believe his promises. Wow. Let's each of us today take account and think about what great things God has done. I'm glad I didn't die in Egypt. What about you? That means we'd be lost, wouldn't it? Wow. One more citation from a scholar here. So it was, says Dr. Allen from the Expositor's Commentary, that the frightening words of the faithless spies led to the mourning of the entire community in their great rebellion against the Lord. They forgot all the miracles that God had done for them. They condemned his mercies and spurned his might. In their ingratitude, they preferred death. Unfortunately, it was death they deserved and death they were to get. The most reprehensible charge against the grace of God was concerning their children. See verses 31 through 33. Only their children would survive. All the rest would die in the desert they had chosen over the land of promise. It says in, that was Dr. Allen from the Expositor's Commentary. It says in Deuteronomy 7:18, you shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. God instituted the feast of the Passover so Israel would never forget. And it's interesting to me that in Jewish life to this very day, no matter how secular they may be, there's still Passover. And the Passover reminds them of what God did, whether they want to believe it or not. And we know about Christ that he is our Passover lamb. It says in Judges 8.34, Judges 8.34, Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Judges 8.34. They didn't remember. Now, this doesn't mean inability to recall. Obviously, they remembered that they came out of Egypt because they wanted to go back. And they complained that God brought them out. It's like Egypt. Never heard of that. When it talks about not remembering, it isn't saying that we lost the ability to recall. It's saying we failed to take it as significant. We don't forget that Jesus died for our sins. We don't forget that God raised him from the dead. We don't forget the basic terms of the gospel. We begin to think it's not significant. It's not important enough to determine how we think. 
It's not important enough to determine how we live. It's not important enough to determine how we treat other people. It's not important enough to determine how we believe. That is what forgetting looks like. Jesus instituted his supper so that we wouldn't forget. It's put in front of us so that we won't forget. When Stephen, which we'll get to here eventually in Acts, preached to his Jewish brothers, he reminded them of the whole history of Israel. Here's what God did, and here's how they rebelled. Here's what God did, here's what God did, here's what God did, but they wouldn't listen. And then he says to his contemporary Jewish brothers, and you crucified the Messiah whom God sent. And they began to put their hands over their ears and rush upon him to kill him and stone him because they didn't want to remember the mighty works of God. I'm so energized about this. I can't can't think of anything else. What did God do for us? How ought we to be because of that? Yes, Luann. Well, I just couldn't help but think of, um, you know, because the Israelites were the ones that were crying out to God to be released from (coughs) Egypt. Yes. But then they didn't like how it all happened, which made me go back to Habakkuk, who also had his concerns about how horrible the world was around him. And God says, well, I'm going to fix that, but it's going to be through the conquest of the nation, and you know, which would have been horrifying too. And I think sometimes, you know, well, not sometimes, but how often we do that, you know, where you pray and pray for certain things to happen, and it only seems to be worse for a while. And we're wonder, you know, we kind of get grumbly and bitter about things. Yeah, like how that. God does it. Yeah. yeah, Habakkuk was not very happy about God's plan. He says they're worse than we are. It says in Psalm seventy-eight forty-two, as we close here, Psalm seventy-eight forty-two. Oh, okay, yes. I'm sorry. I, I know you're, we're visitors, and, and I, I don't want to interfere. Welcome. You've got a deadline, maybe. But, you know, what, what, what I get from this, too, is that, you know, faith is always tested. And, and I forget that. Faith is always tested. True. And, and also, the other thing is, it's easy to, to trust God to run away from a bad situation. But it's so hard, and, and I think I have to own this. I don't, I don't like those kind of terms, you know, own this. But, you know, it's easy to be hard on these people. But I think it's, it's easier to run away from a bad situation and trust God for that than it is to trust God enough to let him lead you through those tests and through yeah. those trials and trust him to where he's taking you. Amen. That's a hard thing to do. That's those, why we the, need to remember the promises. And those people uh, in um, South Carolina... They're mature Christians. I mean, they understand. Wow. Yeah. God gives us grace. You know, I've had a lot of bad stuff happen to me lately, but I have to always remember God is gracious and kind. One more verse as we close. Psalm seventy-eight forty-two. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Will we serve God no matter what happens? May we, by God's grace. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your goodness is unquestioned and you're perfectly pure and holy and you've given us these lessons so that we don't fall in the same example of disobedience. May we remember what you've done and believe your promises. Help us, Lord, to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen.